1: the buck sexton
0: show all right team welcome back to the freedom hunt uh, we are very pleased to be joined by our friend andy mccarthy he's a former federal prosecutor currently he is uh, uh with national review andy thank you so much for calling in do we have andy yeah i'm here hello there we go sorry i didn't hear you for a sec all right great to have you sir uh let's talk about your latest i talked about this yesterday when i was in for rush the uh gop Ethics. What was the Office of Ethics or something? Office of Congressional Ethics. O.C.E. You're saying amateur hour. What happened there?
1: Well, you know, look, I I think, Buck, the timing of raising this was idiotic. You know, let's be honest. It was like politically um, if you were sitting around a table and and saying, what's the stupidest thing we can fly out of the box with uh, in a in a moment when we finally, after 10 years, have control of both houses of Congress and the White House. And we have in front of us an ambitious agenda, an urgent need to deal with Obamacare. Uh, You know, Trump has this tax reform, trade reform, all these big uh, items uh, to come uh, to start out even before the session began uh, in a unilateral way with trying to uh, clip the wings of something that's perceived by the public to the extent the public even knew about it before five minutes ago. Which is very few of them, but yes. Right. Um, you know, it was, it was really, really dumb politics. Uh, and I, I think in some ways the Republicans ought to thank Trump uh, because not only did his tweet um, grab all of the attention, it made them, you know, have a moment of, uh, of, of thankfully, of, of clarity of saying, you know, what are we doing to ourselves here? And they pulled the plug on it. So instead of becoming. You know, a three-month story. It's a one-day story. Uh, I hope it's a one-day story. So,
0: <clears throat> interesting as the media covered it yesterday, Andy, the New York Times wrote how they were. There was an effort to uh, to eliminate or to, or to kill the office of congressional ethics, and then later would say, "Well, they're trying to gut it." Uh, so there was the reporting was was both that it was being eliminated and it was just being altered. But you're right. It's a political loser. And I mean, Trump actually seemed to see this. And some members of Congress didn't. It? it doesn't matter if they were changing, you know, how many pens and pencils the secretaries are given on day one. It doesn't matter because it looks bad.
1: Right. No, it looks terrible. And, you know, I don't think they meant to prioritize it. I just think they did it under the uh, structure of establishing rules for the new session, uh, which they're entitled to do unilaterally because they're the majority. But the way it then played out was that the Republicans unilaterally gutted an ethics panel, which, since the ethics panel was created by the Democrats in 2008 to exploit Republican uh, corruption scandals that were, you know, the fallout of those was underway in 2008 when this thing uh, was foisted on us. Um, it looked terrible. It looked like, uh, you know, uh, we finally got our hands back on the wheel and this is what we want to start with. But all that said, this panel. Is to my mind, w- once I was informed about it, and I must say I never heard of it before uh, yesterday or the day before either, uh, but it's kind of like a civilian review complaint board uh, that, that uh, or some p- civilian complaint review board that oversees uh, and investigates uh, allegations of misconduct by the New York City Police Department, um, which, you know, by the way, I looked at uh, Heather McDonald's book yesterday. Uh, Do you know how many of those complaints that the 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 complaint review board uh, actually verifies? Um, It's about seven percent to give you some sense of, um, you know, of of how effective these things are. But this thing was uh, to me, it was an unconstitutional body because it didn't even though it was created by Congress. It was created as kind of an independent body that didn't report and wasn't accountable and wasn't elected by anyone. It didn't. It wasn't part of the Congressional Ethics Committee. And you know, I know this gets into the weeds for for people, and I I apologize for that. But the ethics process is actually put together in a pretty careful bipartisan way. It's the only committee in Congress where you have ten permanent members, five on each, from each party, no matter. What the, uh, what the division, you know, which party is in control of Congress, the ethics committee is always five and five from each party to, to try to keep it honest and make sure that it's not used, because you can see how it can be used uh, abusively to raise into ethical problems things that are only rumors uh, and the like, which, if they get branded as something that's being looked into by an ethics body, can be used in political ads against people and you know, the public, let's, let's face it, when they hear these things, they're, what, what they get out of these messages is that somebody's being investigated by something that's called an ethics panel, uh, not that there's anything actually to the allegations. So what the Republicans wanted to do was bring this thing under the oversight of the ethics committee, which everybody should be comfortable with because there's an equal number of Democrats and Republicans on each side – they're elected members of Congress, so they're answerable to the public. If they do anything shady, um, they're going to you know, pay a price for that. And you know, it's not like, as Jim Garrity at National Review pointed out, it's not like they're the only body doing investigations of corruption in Congress or that they're the most important ones. Uh, in fact, when I was at the Justice Department, the worst thing you wanted to see if you were a prosecutor was Congress doddering its way like a bull in a china shop into the middle of something that you were trying to investigate. I don't mean to sound arrogant this way, but as a professional-trained law enforcement person, so yeah, this is. I, know, I said this yesterday on Russia's show. It's it's away.
0: not like the elimination of this office means that now congressmen can take paper bags of cash under the table, and the FBI and the DOJ and everything going to say, well, you know, there's no office of congressional ethics, so I, I guess we just have to look the other way. But again, it was it was sort <laughs> right. of a mountain out of a mole. It was a political issue much more so than. A, as you point out, once you get down in the weeds, it may make sense, it may not make sense. I mean, depends on what exactly they were going to plan to do with it, but it still was a political loser. Andy, you were a former uh, federal prosecutor. Everyone listening knows that because I introduced you that way. But you're somebody who's had a lot of people, I'm sure, over, over the years, in the past hopefully not so much anymore, although who knows, uh, lie to you. Julian Assange saying that he is uh, – did you see the interview by any chance?
1: Nope. Wouldn't, wouldn't give it the time of day. I, I'm – I'm old enough to remember, Buck, when uh, the New York Times gave its pages to the leadership of Hamas to write op-eds, uh, and conservatives, including on Fox News, used to be outraged that a major American media platform would be given over to enemies of the United States. So I, I still abide by that, uh, you know, regardless of which platform being used. And to my mind, Julian Assange is an enemy of the United States, I wouldn't – here's when I'll be interested in what he says, Buck, when he identifies who the source was, and then we have something we can actually investigate because I don't want to take his word for it anyway. But the fact that he says, I didn't get it from X, when you and I both know, and you better than I because you're more experienced on the intelligence end of this, but it's a commonplace in espionage, even if people are being borderline honest, and honesty is not exactly the – you know, the, the, the lingua franca of, of intelligence work. Right. But no, it is not. You operate all the, you operate all the time with cutouts and plausible deniability is a big concept. In fact, the reason that we have what we call covert operations is so that we can deny what we did. If we ever get called on it, that's, you know, part of the, part of the deal. So, and my, you know, my, personally, my closest experience with this was, I had to get involved in proving some of what we did as an intelligence community to aid the Mujahideen in Afghanistan uh, during the Soviet invasion and the jihad there. And it was hard for me as a member of the Justice Department, even under court orders, to get cooperation from the intelligence community on that, even though books had been written on the subject by then because they had given their word – to their intermediary. We can now identify them as the Pakistani intelligence service, but I had trouble doing that at the time. That didn't become public, I don't think, till the 9-11 commission hearings, you know, years and years later. But the whole point of that was that for 10 years, everybody on the planet knew that the United States had basically armed and funded and and trained a lot of the Afghan Mujahideen against the Russians. And we, we basically... As an intelligence community, even though everybody knew that, denied it until it was finally, uh, you know, public uh, public record. Not public record in the media, public record in you know in, in an official capacity in in hearings. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're still declassifying
0: that, things from from uh, from Vietnam and, and I think even World War II in some cases. So,
1: yeah, but the, but if you're going to be effective in espionage one of the things that you have to learn to do, and this is this is hard for people to grasp, but it's important in terms of protecting the country, is you have to look people in the eye, including your enemies, and lie to them. That's what you do. So, you know, Julian Assange looked me in the eye last night, if I had been watching, uh which I wasn't, uh, but he looked America in the eye as I understand it and said the Russians didn't do it, you know, whoopee.
0: Yeah. Uh, it's, I, I'm, I'm surprised at how, how many people have, have trusted me on, on other issues of, of intelligence who on this one mm-hmm. think that somehow I'm missing it. I'm like really Julian DeS- I mean, the, the WikiLeaks release of uh, Chelsea Manning uh, the Chelsea Manning uh, purloined documents, that wasn't whistleblowing. That was just uh, airing a lot of confidential. US government material to hurt the United States. That wasn't wh- people seem to have forgotten that that there was no whistleblowing. There was nothing that there was no right. whistle that was being blown.
1: No, and hooking up Snowden with the Russians, um, you know, that was enemy activity. Uh, the damage that Snowden did in terms of what he took and leaked. I know, you know, there's a, a segment of our population, for whatever reason, uh, wants to depict him as a heroic figure. And uh, yeah, I'm grateful that uh, uh, Edward J. Epstein actually dismantled that uh, in an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal this week. Uh, but Snowden is an enemy of the United States. Assange is an enemy of the United States. Um, When they speak, you have to assume it's propaganda because they don't have America's best interest at heart. And I think it's a really bad thing for people who support the incoming president, who I – you know, I wasn't a a Trump supporter during the primaries, but I certainly tried to help his campaign from the sidelines, and I did vote for him. So, you know, I'm I'm saying this as somebody who uh, supported Trump ultimately – in the election, um, we don't want to lose sight of the fact that people are enemy of the enemies of the United States just because they are fleetingly saying something that may be helpful and expedient for us in the moment, um, because they still are who they are. It's kind of you know I tear my hair out when we're in the middle of some policy debate and some conservative says, you know, Alan Dershowitz agrees with us or, you know, Jonathan Turley agrees with us. Um, yeah, I'm always glad for as much agreement as I can as I can muster and as I can get on my side. But at the same time, I have a I have a big problem with the idea that somebody who I think is wrong on policy probably eighty or ninety percent of the time, suddenly, you know, once in a blue moon agrees with me on something and I'm supposed to go up in a balloon about that. You know, I just I I feel the same way about the enemy. You know, uh, occasionally uh, they're going to say things that are helpful to one side or the other of a policy debate. But I don't think that we ought to ever factor that in without reminding ourselves constantly and up front that the information has to be discounted because they're enemies of the United States.
0: Andy McCarthy is a bestselling author and contributing editor at National Review. Uh, Andy, great to have you as always. Please come back soon.
1: Thanks so much, Buck